Hi everyone, this is Paul from the Atypical Rainbow. Normally you'd be hearing some theme music right about now, um, but this is a content disclaimer. Uh, in this episode, Atypical Philosophy, How to Be a Good Person, we're going to talk about some sensitive topics, including sexual assault and, to some extent, uh, murder. Uh, it, it's not in great detail and we don't go into uh, talk about it a lot, but it is there. If that is triggering for you, uh, by all means, skip this episode. There are some other good things. We do talk about some other very nice, positive things. Uh, otherwise, if this is triggering for you in any way, please reach out, uh, call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 or Lifeline Australia on one three double one one four. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Before we get started, don't forget to check out our old episodes on the ACAST website. Just search for The Atypical Rainbow. We're the only one there. Uh, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Atypical Rainbow. We'll try to post up some interesting articles and send you reminders about new episodes. And subscribe wherever you get good podcasts. So, that was nice and quick. Let's get down to the business end of the episode. Today's episode is in the series Atypical Philosophy. Today, we're going to talk about how to be a good person. Uh, I'm going to start, as I often do, with my motivation. This is a stupid one. So, I've recently been re-watching a uh, a sitcom called New Girl. I don't really need to explain the background of it. It's not particularly important. But in one of the episodes, one of the characters uh, has been found out to be cheating on his girlfriend. But spends an episode trying to figure out whether he is a good person. And my gut black and white autistic reaction is, no, you are a terrible person, I hate you, and all your happiness is undeserved. But is that necessarily fair? Um, how do you gauge what it means to be good? And I guess as part of that, you know, how much room for improvement are you allowed? Yeah, I think when it comes to the kids, Matt probably struggles with this a bit, because sometimes he gets caught up in the idea that a single mistake changes his identity away from being a good person. Yeah, and I mean, that's the risk with autism, is that there's this inherent perfectionism and the idea of black and white thinking. And, of you know, it is a very different experience judging someone else in a black and white manner versus being judged in a black and white manner, because they're both the same kind of philosophy, but the effect might be different. So... One of the, I guess, side effects of autism is this sort of self-righteousness, this feeling that if a person with autism thinks they know what the rule is and other people don't follow it, they are automatically in the right and the person who's doing the wrong thing is in the wrong. But when the reverse happens, sometimes it can be very hard to deal with that kind of uh, sense of inadequacy, failure, risk of judgment. And I, I think that's um, it's, it's a difficult thing to reconcile. Yeah, I guess if the person you think is in the wrong is you, then it changes from self-righteousness to self-loathing. Yeah. And ideally, you want to try and find the balance between the two because, you know, we it is important to recognize your own mistakes and recognize um, when what you're doing is not okay. And sometimes it is out of genuine ignorance. Sometimes it's just that no one explained to you that it was polite to ask for something before you take it or um, no one explained to you that it's not nice to talk about someone's weight. But I guess at the same time, though, how much, again, how much leeway should be allowed? Yeah, like, in our current climate of discussions, one of the things that has come up a few times is what a man does when he realises that he has assaulted someone without realising. 
and how he how he comes to terms with the fact that he has sexually assaulted someone without thinking about it. So what do you mean by that? So there's been stories coming up um, from young men who would say that once they were actually taught consent properly, they realised that what had been happening during a sexual encounter was not consent. That they thought, oh, she's, you know, agreed, but they overlooked the fact that they had put so much pressure on her to agree. Or they overlooked the fact that consent can be withdrawn at any time. So that once they got the yes, they ignored any further discomfort or signs that she wasn't consenting. And they, so they weren't getting enthusiastic, continued consent because no one had explained to them what that was and how to look at that. Yeah, the, that reminds me of this uh, really uh, apt but awkward scene in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So this this actually has context. So the main character goes to college and she's in her 30s and she's hanging out with a bunch of 17-year-olds and she starts talking to this guy. And they start hitting it off and it gets to the point where maybe they want to do something more physical. And he pulls out a physical contract and tries to get her to sign it. And it kind of, it sucks all the romance out of it. And then um, he starts crying because she's rejected him. Because she's like, well, what are we doing this for? And... What she realizes is that she, he's 17 years old. He, he's acting like an adult, but he actually isn't an adult and doesn't have the experience to understand kind of the nuances of social interactions and about consent. And someone had taught him a very, you know, rigid, but kind of still legally respectful kind of way, but rigid nonetheless. And I think it's about figuring out how to have that conversation in a way that makes it part of the experience of intimacy, not just this sort of, you know, stop sign that has to be uh, obeyed before anything further can continue. Yeah. And I I think one of the problems around here is whose fault is it? Like, is it the school's fault? Is it the parent's fault? Or is it the individual's fault? I think it's always a risk to assume that one person is to blame because, you know, I think we should all recognise that everything is multifactorial. Um, I think we're the danger can lie is if the person in question, so if it was this this young man, mm-hmm. if they blame everyone else and take no responsibility for it. And I think for me, thinking about the question of what makes a good person, I think that's what makes a bad person. It's that it's not owning your mistakes at all. I mean, it may not be the young man's fault entirely, but recognising your role in contributing to a problem, I think, is part of what makes you a good person. But what's the difference between taking no responsibility and only taking partial responsibility? I think at least recognizing partial responsibility means that you know what you've done. Like you have an awareness of the action itself. Whereas shifting the blame to other people means that you don't need to do anything to change. You're making it other people's responsibility. I know, but what I'm saying is, is shifting the blame partially already not taking responsibility? I guess it's a question of whether it's shifting or whether it's acknowledging. I mean, again... Uh, you know, when people make mistakes, obviously there are degrees of mistakes, so this doesn't apply to everything by any means, but if someone makes a mistake and it's because they haven't been taught something. So again, I'm looking at it through an autistic lens. So if someone with autism says something really inappropriate, is it that they didn't pick up on the intuitive cues, which again, was always going to be difficult for someone with autism, or is it that they were never taught not to say it and therefore is it their fault? And therefore are the consequences of their actions their responsibility to fix. And I think to some degree, you have to cut, you have to take some responsibility for that in that 
kind of that lack of awareness and the lack of understanding of why that might be, um, you know, uh, something something that you said wrong or did wrong. Uh, so I, I think that, I think shifting the blame is different, but acknowledging where the problem lies is a different matter. Okay. So if someone mugs someone because the social security payments are not enough... That's a, see again. There are, there are degrees of mistakes. Yeah. Obviously, so, social faux pas are minor. They're, they're minor incidents, but maybe emotionally significant, depending on the faux pas. Mm-hmm. But yes, once we enter criminal territory, okay, that's a different thing entirely. But you know, having sex with someone out without consent is a crime. Yeah. So what's the question? So is putting part of the blame onto the fact that no one taught the boy take away from his responsibility? For the crime he has committed. No, because it assumes that there's a finite amount of responsibility to be had. Okay. Whereas everyone has some responsibility to some degree, which is my point. So he can take full responsibility as well as other people take responsibility. Well, no, no. I didn't say he had to take full responsibility. I'm saying that it's about acknowledging the problem, understanding why the problem occurred, and fixing it for the future. And some of that requires the, um, the environment, then the system, to sort of aid the person. So this is this is part of the issue with an individualistic society. If we if we say that everything is because of one person's fault, then there's no chance for them to redeem themselves cuz where mm-hmm. are they going to get the resources? How do they know where to go? You can't tell someone go and prove yourself and then give them absolutely no direction whatsoever. Yeah, but I think it's it's hard when you get to crimes. Yeah, crimes are trickier. And look, I don't I don't I know the legal system very well and I don't know the I guess the full scope of the kind of crimes and criminals you can get. I guess the sort of the other end of the, the problem, the bit that I would say probably where there might be some level of irredeemability is if the person in question doesn't understand what they did was why what they did was wrong. Yeah. Like, obviously, you know, a, a complete psychopath, you could basically say there's nothing that society did wrong to make this person do this crime. Yes. But with most people, because most people aren't psychopaths, there's some some reason they've committed a crime. But I guess it's whether or not it's a fixable reason or not. I mean, let's let's say, for example, um, it was t- trauma-based. Mm-hmm. Let's say that they were experiencing trauma and this was their way of getting control. Is it the right thing for them to do? No. Does it make them a good person? Not in my books. But at the same time, does that necessarily mean they should be completely written off? Or let's let's say that given the right motivation, they recognise their problem and are seeking to fix it, or, mm. or are willing to um, to look at themselves and actually re- not repent is not the right word because I don't want it to be religious, but you know to to make amends for what they've done. Do they deserve that right, or do we again e- erase them as as a good per- from the good person list of society and just decide that they're automatically criminals? You know, and uh, look, not again. Not that I understand the legal system well, but if TV's taught me anything, you know, this is this is some of the some of the issues for people who are ex-cons trying to re-enter society. Is that some, you know, might have um, made a mistake. Some were uh, were genuinely remorseful, but none of that necessarily mattered because all that anyone ever saw was their rap sheet, as it were. Yeah, though there are some lines I think that people would have trouble. Letting someone back from. Such as? Like, probably domestic violence can be one of those things. Um, especially someone who has killed their own child. It would be hard for people to 
accept that person as redeemed at any point in their life. Yeah. And I guess... I'm I'm trying to genuinely think whether there is a place for redemption there. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Um, you know, religious views would say that redemption is, is allowed for everyone, particularly the Catholics. Mm-hmm. If we are truly a socially just society, theoretically, you know, giving people the ability to rehabilitate should be offered to everyone, no matter what the circumstance. I don't know. You're right. Look, if, if someone hurt their own child, I mean, that's... I, I would, like, again, my... my gut reaction is that that's irredeemable. Yeah. So, the, you know, the issue is not clear, um, but I guess that's, that's the hard thing to try and navigate, you know, and what what is the line? Where are the boundaries? What is the What are the parameters by which forgiveness is allowed? Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you know, and again, what does it take to be a good person? You know, if we, if we had some criminals all lined up in front of us and we had said to them, okay, if you do these following five things, you will be given a chance to be considered a good person again. You know, what would those five things be? I mean, again, that's all very arbitrary and very limited. So I understand that. And I'm not, we're not, you know, we're not trying to establish rules for a society. But this is the, the kind of questions that I ask myself sometimes. I kind of think, what does it take? Or do I take my own route, which is, some, which is what I've had to learn to do um, from an occupational standpoint, which is I do have to be black and white about it. I have to say sometimes, you know what? You're not a good person. You're not good for me. Get out. I don't want to see you again. Like, yeah, not a good person to have in your life. Yeah. As opposed to society deciding someone is not a good person. Yeah. I have to say, when you were saying, like, line them up, I was thinking of, like, the good place and which ethical philosophy would explain that if they know that doing these five things would make them a good person, <laughs> then it doesn't count that they're a good person now. Yeah. <laughs> Moral desert and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they had to do those five things without anyone telling them to do those five things. Oh, so complicated. But, see, okay, and this is this is a, a terrible kind of idea as well, but is there a place for fake it until you make it? Is there a place for putting someone on the path to do the right thing, even if their motivation is corrupt, until they kind of tangibly recognize the implications and the benefits of doing the right thing? Or even the idea that someone could go through their entire life doing the right thing, even though they were doing it because they were trying to pretend they were a good person. At the end of their life, if they had done nothing wrong, were they wrong about being a bad person? Yeah. Well, okay, yeah, we're diving really deep into into the philosophy um, pool here. Yeah, yeah, motivation. This is that's a really that's a really tricky one to kind of analyze because ultimately, because if, it depends on it depends on what position you take because and I think the good place has taught us a little bit about this but I can't remember which one the effect on society I think that's one of the philosophies as well is that Mm. your goodness is judged by the impact on society so in that example that you've just given where someone is pretending to be good um, the whole time does nothing but good deeds but their motivation was corrupt are they necessarily a good person Mm. although what would be the motivation to do good things even if you had the wrong motivation I guess fear of punishment hmm but I mean, that's what our society is based on, right? I mean, why else would we have laws that that force you that punish you for doing the wrong thing? Yeah, but I guess if you're afraid of, I don't know, afraid of the punishment rather than having guilt, like they are two different things. Mm. Like, in in theory, a a properly good person should 
avoid doing the wrong thing just because they'll feel bad. Because they'll feel remorse. And they'll feel guilt about what they're doing. Whereas, I guess, a person who doesn't isn't capable of feeling that guilt, but is still afraid of the consequences of actually doing an action. But is guilt also a selfish emotion? Like, so, wouldn't, again, how do you define goodness? Is goodness the fact that you feel better for making someone else's life better? Or is it, and, and therefore, by contrast, is it a negative thing to only do things because you feel guilty that it might hurt someone? Well, yeah, I guess that goes, also goes in the idea of apologizing so that someone's not angry at you. Yes. Like, you're, you're trying to gain something. I Like, I did write an essay when I was in university, the fact that there was no such thing as a selfless action. Go on. (laughs) Anyway, I I talked about the fact that if you believe you're going to heaven, then jumping on a grenade is actually not a selfless action. Oh, because there's no sacrifice and no loss by jumping on a grenade. Yeah, because you actually think that you'll be rewarded for jumping on the grenade and giving your life up. Okay. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, yeah, it it can be very difficult when you start looking too deeply into it, which is, I guess, why there's so many philosophers and no one ever has a single answer to the universe. (laughs) Why not? Dang it. But I I guess we should pivot into what do we do as parents, and particularly parents of children with ASD, to try to make them fit into, I guess, society's mould of a good person. See... The way I've been sort of pitching it, and I don't, like you and I haven't actively discussed this necessarily, but I think we're on the same page, is that you start with some base morality, some really simple, easy-to-follow rules, because life inherently will get more complicated as mm-hmm. they grow older, as they interact with more people, as they have to kind of follow more rules that may not necessarily align with their own personal instincts. I kind of figured that what we do is you start with some simple things, like don't punch people. Um, and it seems really basic, but you'd be surprised at how easily it gets broken if you don't, if this it's not necessarily sort of spoken about. Yeah. And from there, you then kind of introduce the mor- the grey morality of, of life. Yeah. And, you know, some of it is going to be situational, so it depends on what might have happened. So, unfortunately, some of it ends up being reactive rather than proactive. Um, but to the best of our ability, we try to be proactive. We try to talk about, this is why we make these choices. This is why we consider these things. So, um, for example, not that I imagine there are many kids listening, but if your kids are listening, shoo them away now. Five, four, three, two, one. So we recently spoke to our kids about the various mythologies that, that, you know, society puts on us. Uh, but we, we chose big lies. And the big, the big, the big white lies, um, the red and white lies, as it were, and you know they 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 took it fairly well. They were already kind of aware, but it kind of started because some of their other friends were already kind of getting suspicious. But then Jake hilariously had really like invested in Santa. He was they very both very much invested. <laughs> he was very convinced that Santa was real, and um, to the point where he convinces of, oh, well, it, it's, you know, the only way that Santa can get around the world is because it must be magic. He had explanations for everything. So when we broke the news to him, it was kind of big. But as part of that, what we said to the both of them was, look, we're telling you this now because we think it's important for you to know, but not everyone else necessarily knows. So if your friends think Santa's real, don't you know, break that that rule that for them because that's part of their magical experience. That that's their parents' choice. It's not your decision to 
you know, break the truth to them. And so that's one of those, like, nuanced things. The idea of a white lie, you know, Jake keeps, has asked us, even within the last few days, what is a white lie? Why do we tell white lies? Yeah, and then Paul asked me to give an example, and all the examples I could think of were some pretty serious crimes. Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, I jumped in with some politeness my, kind of lies. My legal studies mind was kind of like, oh, you know, if someone's hunting all the Asians, <laughs> I'd lie about you being Asian. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty dark, dude. <laughs> what are you doing there? Well, I, you know, I studied legal studies. My my mind is full of these sorts of things. Mm. I like remember... your mind is full of medical things. Yes, that is fair. That is fair. So, you know, these these little rules as they come up, and the ways that the rules end up getting kind of broken, but for, you know, arguably good reasons, well, in inverted commas, good reasons, I think as we go along, that's that's how I've been kind of approaching it. Mm-hmm. Have you had an approach that we haven't really sort of eked out? Well, one of the things we did, and I think it was actually you who started doing this, however it fitted into um, what I was hearing about consent training, is the idea of having a safe word, even with young kids. Obviously not, you know, about sex, because they're young kids, but about physical touching, tickling. Like, just a word that if you are uncomfortable, you can just say and the person has to respect that and stop it. Uh, so that is a way of basically teaching consent without actively teaching consent. And that's something that we're doing. So the kids have a safe word of tomato. Um, and if they say tomato to the other person, that person has to stop. What, whether it's tickling, wrestling, joking, laying too close to them or whatever. Yeah. Hugging them. So that is something that we're kind of doing to teach them the basics of consent before we go into actually explaining consent as it becomes age appropriate. That was a complete accident because I, I use sarcasm a lot, but unfortunately my sarcasm is a little bit Daria-esque where it's kind of just flat and you can, it'd be very hard to tell whether I'm being sarcastic or not. And unfortunately Matt had picked up on it and enjoyed it. Like he loves sarcasm, Um, but he still hasn't quite figured it out. And so part of the problem is that when the two of them were play fighting, it was, it's not aggressive or vicious. It's just kind of wrestling around. Um, Someone might say stop, but then possibly because of the autism, neither of them are sure whether or not that genuinely means stop or it's sort of stop and then an opportunity to attack again, mm-hmm. you know, or like, or like a fake out. And so I kept, I kept noticing this and, you know, each of them would get upset in different ways. Uh, so it's not that it was just Jake or just Matt who was getting upset all the time. So, you know, depending on their mood of the day, sometimes Jake gets over it faster than Matt, Matt and vice versa. So I kind of went, okay, what is a distinctive easy to identify word that does not naturally come up in conversation or could not be mistaken for something else. And the thing is, they both hate tomatoes. Uh, So I went, okay, let's choose this word and see how we go. And probably for the the first like year or so, it was working really well, but it has gradually started wearing off a little bit as well. So I do have to kind of reinforce it just a little bit each time uh, because I don't look, and I'm not hundred percent sure why. Uh, it's not that it leads completely back to the pre-existing behaviour, which, you know, as as Grant was saying, does extend out to, um, you know, verbal ribbings and things, you know. Uh, I think the part of the problem is the nuances of it, in the sense that... So, um, the kids and I call each other silly names all the time, like dummy or silly or whatever, right? And it's all in good fun, and none of us really mean it. 
But depending on the day, sometimes Jake or Matt will take it more personally than the others. And so I think when that happens and they use tomato, the person saying the word gets confused. It's like, but I didn't say anything different to what I had said yesterday or the week before. Why do I have to stop now? And I think that's the part that's hard to reconcile and why the safe word is... Um, not not as effective as it used to be. It's not ineffective, just not as effective. I think that's a lesson that's important to learn. It, it is, I agree. Like, as I'm sort of thinking about it, it is useful to kind of understand that it's not meant to be a nuanced term. Like, it's meant to be a very clear, distinctive stop term. It doesn't matter why it's being stopped. Yeah. It should just stop, and that's the end of it. Yeah, and it's not up to the other person to say, no, your use of that doesn't make sense. Yes. Because exactly. otherwise we end up back in the time that, you know, once you're married... Husband can do whatever he wants to. You. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. The, con- the consent thing is interesting because what are the? I think you were watching the drum about it, weren't you? There was the a, drum talk is talking about it a lot. Yeah. At the moment. I think one of the ideas that was brought up by the panelists was the idea of taking the taboo away from consent. Yeah, like because in Australia, over the last week, there's been a lot of ridiculousness about the government bring out videos where they basically it's entirely about. Someone force-feeding someone else a milkshake. Can you explain that to me? I'm so out of the zeitgeist. I have no... I've I've seen Simpsons memes about it, but I genuinely don't understand this milkshake thing. It was ridiculous. If you ever get a chance to watch it, you should. It's both boring and ridiculous. (laughs) It's like... Yeah, like this girl's like, would you like to try a milkshake? And the boy's like, yes, I'd like to try a milkshake. And he has some. And she's like, is it better than yours? And he's like, no. And then she like gets... like. I assume the ice cream off the milkshake and like smears it over his face. And I guess that's meant to be a rape. I don't (laughs) know. Like people like this, like even knowing what it's kind of trying to be is that (laughs) I just don't understand that. Um, So yeah, like her putting milkshake on him is crossing the line without his consent Okay. But then then there's a bit where it's like, if you're in a healthy relationship, maybe you can talk about the fact she put milkshake on your face. <laughs> um, if you're in an unhealthy relationship, maybe yeah. look for other people who can help you. And he looks around, there's like people looking at him and he's covered in milkshake. <laughs> and he goes to them. Um, it just... Such a ridiculous video. Obviously made... With the instruction that they were not allowed to mention sex. Um, and that that's the problem. Like, you produce these ridiculous videos about milkshakes. You show them these people and they don't have any better understanding. As we talked about earlier, sometimes later when they do understand what's going on, they realise that they've broken the law. Mm. So, it's just... But I know that there's a lot of people who get very angry about any sex education. There's certain, you know... Groups. Groups of generally white women... (laughs) Yeah. ...who get very angry about any mention of homosexuality or actual sex, and they say, you know, it's up to the parents to teach this. But the fact is, it's sort of such a wide thing that the parents aren't doing a good job. And I don't want to make judgments on these people, but I imagine if they're afraid of their kids hearing about sex at school, they're probably also not doing very good sex education at home. Yes. So these kids are just not being informed anywhere. Yeah. It's a, it's that whole abstinence-only only thing. The, the yeah. assumption that if you don't talk about it, it'll never happen, which is complete garbage. Yeah. And, you know... Um, 
Equivocal studies state that abstinence only doesn't work. Higher rates of STIs in teen pregnancies in in places where abstinence only is the way that it's taught. It's it's insane, right? Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. If you have a religious perspective on it, throw it in there by all means. Like, if you, I respect your religion. If you want to teach your kids about, you know, the religious elements of. Um, intimacy and about relationships, by all means do so, but don't avoid the topic. Avoiding it means that they'll ask in the wrong places, or they'll do something that is either irresponsible or not to their best interest without realising, because no one's taught them, hey, this is not the right way to do this thing. Yeah, and, you know, 17-year-old boys getting sex ed from other 17-year-old boys is not a good way. (laughs) Oh, God. Yes, in in the age... Or porn. Yes, in the age of free pornography, you just cannot depend on kids osmosing things for themselves. I mean, I think... Or osmosing the right things. Yeah. I think it was always ridiculous that you were, like, you never really learned about sex till marriage. Because, again, there's no one there to teach you. Like, no one's telling you how to do these things. But then it's just kind of this, oh, yeah, once you put those rings on your fingers, you'll figure it out. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But, again... Well, I think the assumption was the guys would know what they're doing. Well, that's That was kind of the the assumption in Bridgerton. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's true. That she doesn't need to know and her mum can just be really awkward and not tell her anything. Because <laughs> the guys know, so it's okay. Oh, Bridgerton was just hilarious. <laughs> for, uh, just if, for those of you who, who haven't watched Bridgerton, it's it's campy and kind of unintentionally hilarious. But the in relation to this topic, the, the mum tries to have uh, a sex education talk with the daughter and is so vague and flowery and metaphorical and completely, completely completely unhelpful but thankfully she's like what the hell are you talking about not those exact words because it's meant to be victoria or london but, yeah the, the, but then it's a quite a major plot point the fact that she doesn't actually understand how sex works even when she's having it yeah and then she has to get actual information from her maid yeah yeah I, I, I enjoyed the fact that it kind of flipped that trope on its head because mm. it, that whole you know pure and chaste thing complete nonsense yeah it, look, you know, we we recently started having the conversation with our kids about sex ed. Um, we, again, we were talking about consent in the concept of other things, in the concept of, yeah, uh, physical space and about, with each other in terms of, you know, wrestling and verbal jostling and all the sorts of things. But eventually those things are going to merge. We, you know, we started with just kind of the the process and the anatomy. And then after that, again, as as things evolve and as they... Start developing relationships. We had like a procreation talk. Yeah. We haven't had an STI or consent talk yet. Yeah, which they're not there yet. They're not going to understand it. Yeah. I mean, like even putting appropriateness aside, whatever side of the line you fall on that with, for me, it's a context thing. Like yeah. I think I that... put a little bit of consent in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, with STIs and stuff, that's not relevant for them. They, they won't. And it's the thing they won't get it, and they won't remember it. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things to remember about autism, if you yourself don't have autism, is that tangibility is a really important thing when it comes to learning. Giving a person with autism a, a concept, a vague idea, and that's why this milkshake thing would be terrible for sex education for someone with autism. Um, you, It works better if there is tangible evidence. Now, whether that is their own personal experience, whether that is, uh, you know, with their relationship with, um, you know, another partner or their, their intimate partner or whatever, or whether that's about, um, you know, visual aids or whatever it might be. Giving a person with autism vague, irrelevant advice is means that it's unlikely to stick in their brains. So, you, so from an educational standpoint, you're actually far better off waiting until it's relevant rather than just kind of 
bombarding the individual with information and hoping they'll pick up something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, th- I think I think you know it's reasonable to to kind of delay certain elements of the talk until it becomes relevant for our boys. Yes, but also I think when there is the talk given, either by parents or the school, it should just actually be about sex, mm. not about milkshakes. Yeah. I, I distinctly remember in... Was actually, this, was, this was aimed at year 10s, 11s, and 12s. Dear God. Not, like, grade 4s. <laughs> so I remember in year 9, I got the sex education talk, and the metaphor I got given was that wearing a condom is like wearing a raincoat in a shower. And of course we all laughed. And no one has understood what that meant or why that was relevant. And actually doesn't 100% make sense either in terms of the metaphor. Um, that That's really weird. So wearing a condom is like wearing a raincoat in a shower. Yeah. That... It, it, who taught you that? The teacher. It's <laughs> almost saying it's, like, it's a ridiculous thing to do. Was yeah. it... Was it... A, a Catholic thing. Was no, it like... we were in Anglican school. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I know your, your parents were Catholic. Yeah. Because, you know... They're, they're... But they were also uninvolved. They didn't but know what was going on in my life. That's the whole thing about, you know, that you shouldn't use contraception in the, like, the Catholic faith. So oh, I, sure. I wondered if that was the thing. No. It was just, again, it was that classic avoidance of the topic. It's the, how do we talk about sex without saying the word sex? How do we not... You know, that that stupid, oh, if you talk about it, it'll give them ideas. And you're like, they've already got the freaking ideas. Like, they're already thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, media will give them the ideas. As, as we've discovered by just, you know, them being around us when watching sitcoms, which is exactly what happened to my parents. I watched sitcoms and I knew words that I didn't understand and they had to explain them to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay, so we've, we've veered well far away from our intent to. It was still interesting nonetheless, but let's, let's ask the question. So, how do you teach a child to be a good person? I guess slowly and systematically. Like, I, I, like what you're talking about, we went through the process of teaching them there's not okay to use your body to hurt other people. Mm. And then we kind of moved on to it's not okay to use your words to hurt other people. Yeah. And that's kind of an ongoing thing, um, because one of the one of the hard things about words as opposed to physical is, like, if you punch someone, you kind of know you're punching them. Whereas if you say something to someone, and they're in on the joke, it's fine. But you say the same thing to the exact, uh, like the exact same thing to someone different who is not in on the joke, you're bullying them. Yes. Um, so one of the things I have worked on is trying to teach them that different people would react to different things in different ways. I've almost played up the idea of me not wanting to be called names because that's kind of your thing. Like, mm. you've taught them that it's okay to sort of friendly tease people. But I try to kind of play up uh, my offence at being called names so that they know that different people can react differently. That's very subtle. I, I, I noticed you doing that. I didn't realise it was deliberate. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I've tried to, tried to give them an example of someone who doesn't want to be called names to differentiate it from someone, like, the friendly teasing among friends. Mm. Yeah. See, my big thing is intent. I think that 
for people with autism, mistakes are going to happen. Because empathy may be a difficult thing for someone with autism, as is picking up social cues or recognising social norms. And it also depends on what culture you grow up in, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Australia being a multicultural society, you know, different people from different backgrounds will have different ways of interacting with their family. You know, sometimes being loud is a natural thing. Yelling is not necessarily a mean thing. But these are the nuances that can be difficult to pick up on. So for me, I think, if nothing else, because I always like to make sure... There are low low bars and low expectations and low standards to, to meet. I think of nothing else. What I want our kids to know is that the intent matters. Is that it's one thing if you say something to someone with good intentions, uh, but, but it might come off wrong. It's another mm-hmm. thing to deliberately go off and try to insult someone or say something in order to hurt them. Yeah, I think the only problem with that is that, that I've discovered from my own life is sometimes you just have to accept the fact that someone was offended even though you didn't intend it. Absolutely, and that's kind of the next part of it, is yeah. that you can only control your intent, you can't control what how other people react. And even if you try to explain it, whether or not they're willing to uh, accept that explanation is completely their choice, and that sucks. Yeah. Like, it sucks to feel that rejection, to feel hurt, to feel misunderstood. Like, I, I get all that. But it is the reality of life, is that we're never, ever going to be able to say anything that'll make everyone happy. Right? Yes. It's not, there's no one thing that anyone can say that is going to be perfect. So you have to accept that whatever you're going to say, so long as you believe it and you are confident in it, um, this is probably more like, you know, when you're giving opinions about things or if you're giving, in my case, medical advice. Yeah. Um, that's all you can do. You know, that, that, is, that is the most you can do. And that is something that can be very hard for people with autism to work on because just letting go of that control, that, mm. that recognizing that you are helpless on a day-to-day basis without even realizing it, I think that can be a really difficult thing to come to terms with. And maybe that just comes with maturity. Like, I don't know if that is necessarily something you can embed into a, a, a growing child's psyche. Mm. But, the, but hopefully what you can do is give them the tools to sort of be conscious of what they're doing and also give them a safe haven to come back to so that when if they do make a mistake, or more accurately, when they do make a mistake, they know that they can come back and learn from it, but then they might just need to let that thing go. Either that person can't be a friend in their life for whatever reason or they need to look past the incident or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, and I guess at the end of the day, if your intention was pure, you can be okay with yourself. And viewing yourself as a good person, even if the consequences were out of your control. Exactly. All right. I think that's a nice place to end it. Thanks for yes. listening. Uh, be sure to stay stay tuned for the next episode, which should be coming out soon. And um, follow us and find us and uh, comment and share and all the good stuff. Thanks very much. Talk to you next time.